Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Piety in Prosperity, a Satanic Wager. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 28, 2012. After I finished grad school, I moonlighted as a at a Presbyterian church as a pastor for home visitation. The very first person I visited that hot summer night in 1985 was a widow named Jan. I could barely believe her story as I sat in her living room. Jan had just lost her husband, her two sons, her father, an uncle, and a nephew in a single boating accident on a lake in Minnesota. Six loved ones had perished in a freak storm on their annual fishing trip. What could I say? I don't remember what I said. I hope I keep kept my mouth shut. As I drove home that night, I thought of the cry of the psalmist, How long, O Lord? The psalmist had had enough. His patience and piety were spent. When fires purge our faith of all dross, what remains? That's the story of Job in a nutshell. <clears throat> the so-called patience of Job has passed into our common vernacular as a proverb but I've never really understood why. Between the prologue and the epilogue of Job, most of this ancient story is an acrimonious debate between Job and his three friends, <clears throat> Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They insist that Job deserves his misfortune and therefore needs to repent. On the other hand, Job protests his innocence. He complains, despairs, doubts, questions, anguishes, and then resigns himself to his mysterious fate. He's anything but patient in the normal sense of that word. Nor does the book of Job deal directly with broad and important philosophical questions like why the wicked prosper, why God can feel silent and hidden or why the moral calculus in our world doesn't always add up. Rather, Job explores a narrow question about the relationship between piety and prosperity. Although Job himself never learns the origin or the purpose of his ordeal, the writer-narrator informs us as the readers. Satan comes before God with a provocative question. In chapter 1, verse 9, he asks, Does Job fear God for nothing? He insists that Job's faith has ulterior motives. Doesn't Job expect a quid pro quo of some sort? In other words, divine blessings for human faith or faithfulness? The accuser adversary, for such is the literal meaning of his name in Hebrew, 
then makes a wager with God. He bets that he can prove that for Job, an immensely wealthy man with a wonderful family, God is nothing more than a cosmic sugar daddy. His faith in Yahweh is fueled by its benefits. God, Satan charges, is really no more than a rabbit's foot or good luck charm for Job. Test him and try him. Squeeze him, Satan wagers, and you'll see that Job's faith is opportunistic and egocentric, rather than gratuitous and theocentric. God accepts Satan's wager, and so he permits Job to be, as it says in chapter 2, verse 3, ruined without reason. A first wave of disasters decimates Job's extravagant wealth and kills his ten children. Then Satan ravages Job's health with festering boils from head to foot. To say that life hands him a dramatic reversal would be a gross understatement. Despite his impatience, his agonizing questions, and emotional outbursts, Job passes the tests with flying colors at each and every stage of the drama. <clears throat> Before this fiasco began, we read that Job was, quote, blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, chapter 1, verse 1. And then during the crisis, and contrary to what we might expect, the narrator writes that in all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He did not sin in what he said, 122.2.10. Though ruined without reason, God tells Satan that Job has still maintained his integrity, 2 verse 3. And then finally, after the fiasco, the epilogue ends with another dramatic reversal, but of a different sort. Whereas at the beginning of the story, Job sought the help of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, at the end of the story, God commands them to seek Job's prayers in intercession. They had wrongly charged Job with brash impiety, but God rightly charged them with folly. We read in 42.7, They have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The story of Job contains several important lessons. In the New Testament, James, the book of James commends Job for his perseverance, James 5.11. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar warn us of the dangers of trying to help or fix our friends when they suffer, despite our best intentions. Even though he wore his heart on his sleeve and fully vented his emotions, God affirmed that Job spoke rightly, which is a reminder that there's no need to sanitize your feelings before God. Job also teaches that we should not make a direct connection between rewards and punishments in this life with a person's sin or righteousness.
Encountering the majesty and mystery of God, Job confessed that he, quote, surely spoke of things I did not understand. And it was precisely his admission of ignorance that led him from second-hand knowledge about God to a direct and personal experience with God. He says in 42.5, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In addition to all of these, though, the primary lesson of this ancient story includes a most, most contemporary application. Many television preachers and books teach that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That is, if you send them your money. Job categorically exposes that lie. In his book, Forty Acres and a Goat, Will Campbell derides such teachers as soul molesters. Genuine faith does not manipulate God for material gain, fear of punishment, or avoidance of unjust suffering. I've always appreciated how the Lutherans of the Reformation distinguish between earthly security, securitas, and divine certainty, certitudo. Security, they said, depends on human guarantees. Certainty depends on God's promises. Job reminds us that while life does not offer anyone any guarantees, we do have the certainty that nothing can separate us from God's love. And for further reflection, we've posted the poem After Augustine by Mary Elizabeth Coleridge. She lived from 1861 to 1907. Sunshine, let it be, or frost, Storm or calm, as thou shalt choose. Though thine every gift was lost, Thee thyself we could not lose. For books this week, I review a title called What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets. The author is Michael J. Sandell. New York, Farrar Strauss Giraud, 2012, 244 pages. Michael Sandel's previous book, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, from the year 2009, was an international bestseller based upon a popular course that he's taught at Harvard for over 20 years, the book was featured in series by both the BBC and PBS. Like that book, What Money Can't Buy, tackles complicated issues with clear prose and everyday examples. Sandell laments how markets and market values have triumphed over all other competing values. In the last 30 years, he says, we've gone from having markets to being a market. Today, you can buy and sell almost anything. 
immigrants can buy permanent residence in the United States if they invest $500,000 and create 10 jobs in areas of high unemployment. Lobbyists in Washington, D.C. pay line standers to secure seats at congressional hearings. School districts pay children for academic performance. Project Prevention pays women drug addicts $300 cash if they agree to sterilization or long-term birth control. In so-called janitor's insurance, corporations like Walmart buy life insurance policies on their employees, often without their knowledge, and then collect the payouts when they die. One author received an undisclosed sum for mentioning the word Bulgari in his book a number of times. <clears throat> How did we get to this point? Traditional economics ignore or even oppose ethical values. Some people argue that unregulated markets are the best means to all public ends. Ayn Rand still commands a wide readership. She criticized self-sacrifice for the public good as the greatest sin and commended radical individualism and selfishness as the greatest virtues. These trends, says Sandel, are aggravated by two factors. First, the persistent prestige of market thinking, despite the devastation of the 2008 crash. And secondly, the rancor and emptiness of our public discourse along with the moral vacancy of contemporary politics. And so Sandel's book tries to reconnect markets and morals. But what's wrong if a person wants to sell a kidney for much-needed money? A homeless person sells his blood to the blood bank. Or if a rich corporation buys naming rights to a stadium built with public tax dollars, is it wrong for a corporation to benefit from the death of its janitor? Sandel argues by analogy, from the clear to the more complex and controversial. It's clear, for example, that we can't, we don't, and we should not commodify everything, like human beings, which would be slavery, votes, love, or friendship. Mere economic utility is reductionistic and doesn't capture our broader human experience. Sandel responds to economic utilitarianism in two broad ways. One objection has to do with fairness. In a society where everything is for sale, life is harder for those of modest means. The more money can buy, the more affluence matters. Second, in some instances, money corrupts, distorts, and degrades its object. Which is probably why, to take just one of his examples, citizens in a Swiss village volunteered to accept nuclear waste as their civic duty. But they refused to do that when offered money because it felt like a bribe. Sandel admits that these are complex and controversial questions. There are gray areas. Sometimes there's no clear answer. In the last sentence of the book, he writes, In the end, the question of markets is really a question about how we want to live together. 
Do we want a society where everything is up for sale? Or are there certain moral and civic goods that markets do not honor and money cannot buy? An excellent book I highly recommend. Michael Sandel, What Money Can't Buy. For film this week, we go to the country of New Guinea. The title is Pururambo, from the year 2005. The Slovakian filmmaker Pavel Barabas has won 150 awards in his home country for his documentaries about people in extreme environments who were unspoiled by civilization of any sort. In Pururambo, he takes us to New Guinea, the largest tropical island in the world, and home to indigenous tribes that speak 700 languages. Getting government permits to these restricted places is hard enough. Getting permission from wary tribal leaders is harder still. Most of them have never seen a white person. These unknown peoples live in Stone Age conditions. No written language, no iron, no wheel, no shoes, and no leather. With stone axes, a bow and arrow, and bone knives, the dense jungle affords them all they need. These so-called tree people live in high tree houses to avoid insects and predators. The white explorers hack their way through dense rainforests to befriend the indigenous tribes and introduce us to their communal ways, especially their diet of green bananas, termites, grubs, lizards, rats, and the sago palm. And yes, they practice cannibalism on occasion. I watched this 60-minute film on Netflix streaming and highly recommend it as an educational film for family night. Kuru Rambo from 2005. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by John Milton, 1608 to 1674. When I consider how my light is spent. It's a reflection on his blindness. <clears throat> when I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, in that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God does not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, and post o'er land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. John Milton, 
when I consider how my light is spent. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 28th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.